Hey everyone, Mikey Hem here. I have another couple debate tracks here for you. I've been having fun recording these, and they're obviously much faster to record and publish than episodes that require research or planning or editing. If you listeners are enjoying them too, great. But if not, please at least skip them in your podcast player app. I need to have some kind of metric to be able to look at to tell if our listeners are finding these frustrating but also fun or just enraging. Sending us feedback on Twitter or Instagram or any other social media is fine too. We've had a pretty mixed reaction to these types of episodes, as well as lively debate about whether it's worth platforming some of the wild things right-wingers say in order to provide an argument against them. But I'll leave it to you to decide, and your play counts, tweets, and messages will let us know if you'd like more. Thanks as always, comrades. Welcome back to Turn Up This Podcast. I'm Mikey Him, and today I'm here with Liquid Zulu again. How's it going? It's going quite good. How about you? Pretty good. And so it's going to be another debate episode, just the two of us this time. We're also streaming live on YouTube. And uh, yeah, I wanted to just start off by handing it off to you, Zulu. I wanted to uh, both ask you about like the reaction from the last episode from among like your fans. I'm assuming that like your fans thought that you guys destroyed us, and, yeah. and I love that. And I think that our fans thought that we destroyed you guys, and I think that's fantastic. I think I would do as many of these as you want where both our fans go away happy with it, and I think that's fantastic content, and I hope that you do too. But I also wanted to just hand it to you to do a bit of like explaining about the positions that I described of yours in the caption from last time, uh, namely being the baby matrix uh, with the artificial wombs to fix abortion, or what else was it? The uh, baby market to solve the adoption crisis. And then also the, uh, the analogy of the, what I called the incel disease. I thought that was kind of funny. But uh, yeah, if you want to explain your positions on any of those, maybe flesh those out a little better, because I'm, I'm certain I'm probably misunderstanding them. Sure. Basically, the um, uh, baby matrix thing, that is a, uh, the position invented by Walter Block on abortion called evictionism, where basically the uh, principal answer to whether or not you're allowed to abort is you're not allowed to abort, but also you're not allowed to force a woman to carry a child, right? So how do we balance these two things together? The answer is that the mother is allowed to evict the fetus, but she's not allowed to just go ahead and kill them. It'd be like if I had a tenant, this is what's called evictionism, and I didn't want them in my house anymore, I'd be allowed to say, hey, get out of here, but I wouldn't be allowed to just walk into the room whilst they're sleeping and, you know, shoot them in the head. Mm -hmm. And so the way this relates to uh, artificial wombs is basically that well you're allowed to evict them but uh, how you're evicting them is very important you're not allowed to forestall the guardianship over them we're basically like you know uh, let's say they're uh, I'm pregnant and I don't want the baby anymore and you are willing to care for this baby I wouldn't be allowed to say hey stop I'm not going to let you care for this baby I'm going to have it die instead I wouldn't be allowed to do that you could say, well, hey, I know you don't want it in your womb anymore, but I've got this nice artificial womb, or maybe even a surrogate mother or whatever, right? Mm. And I, I'm willing to incur the costs of getting that baby out of you and into this artificial womb, and then the baby will survive. 
So then in practice, this would be potential adoptive parents who would be paying the cost for these artificial wounds and all the infrastructure that goes in place for that then. Yeah. Okay. And then I guess, so the only reason that that's not happening already is because like you said, there's government regulation around it and we can't use them for humans, right? Yeah. That's basically any, the only reason. Are there any places where, is that just worldwide that they're regulated against for human use? Um, I'm not, I don't think there is anywhere on earth where they're allowed to be used for uh, humans because I think everyone on earth is basically either, yeah, you're allowed to abort at this point or you're not allowed to abort, you know, right? Because it's just not really no, needed. Yeah. And then, yeah, I guess um, it still sounds to me like it would be a vast and kind of like unnecessary energy use and infrastructure and like delaying of something. Because I, I, again, I could be getting it wrong, but I, my impression from the last time was that babies that go into these artificial wombs that are unwanted. If they stay unwanted and nobody wants to adopt them, then they eventually do die, but at least they had the chance. But so I guess you're saying that the the baby wouldn't even go into an artificial womb unless somebody had already like put up the money to create one for it. Um, yeah. But then what happens to other women or anybody who gets pregnant and they don't have somebody with an open artificial womb and they don't want this baby, they just have to carry it to term? Uh, no, they wouldn't have to carry to a term. They could still evict the baby, right? You know, it's not it's not being cared for, for by them anymore. I'll mm -hmm. very quickly die in that state. That's just they could they could do that if they wanted. The the only problem is they're not allowed to prevent anyone from coming in and helping this baby out. Okay, so in this scenario, women still or people still would be able to get abortions, um, but then they just I guess when when are the are there any scenarios in which People cannot get abortions in this scenario. Well, it's it's not really them getting an abortion. It's them, you know, like a C-section isn't an abortion. It's just removing the baby from the womb, right? And if you don't put it somewhere where it'll survive, then it'll die, right? That's what evicting is. So isn't this kind of... Then who is the person... Is it just a, a doctor that I assume this person privately hires to then evict the fetus? And now I guess the doctor is then kind of responsible for the, the death of the baby by taking it out of the womb. No, they're not responsible in the legal sense, right? They, I, think, um, I think it's immoral to aid in uh, you know, lethal evictions like this. I wouldn't do it, but it's mm. not unjust. They haven't murdered that child. They have just uh, you know, n n taken it from someone who is currently... Uh, sustaining them and doesn't want to sustain them anymore. And so in this situation, I guess the, the qualm you have then is with the method, because if, if you're okay with like a C-section removal of the baby and an eviction, are you, you're not okay with methods that actually do terminate the fetus, even if the end result is the same. Yeah. Okay. It's, I guess it's, that just seems it's, kind of weird to me. Well, it's the, it's the distinction between, you know, I have like, hmm, what's a good analogy for this? It would be the difference between, you know, some guy has, uh, you know, a disease and I have the antidote to this disease in my hand. I didn't give him the disease or anything, he just developed this disease at his own. He said, hey, I, uh, can I get that antidote? And I'm like, eh, no, I don't want to give you my antidote because I might get it at some point. Right. That, that would be like evicting. I'm just refusing to sustain that person. He will die. But what would be unjust is if I said, I'm not giving you this antidote and I'm going to shoot you. Right. The results will be the same. The guy will end up dead. 
but only one of them am I responsible for his death. I mean, so that's, I guess, logically consistent. Um, I know it's another analogy. You know that that's not my preferred way of doing it, but I guess um, the only thing I have left on the issue, because I actually would like to move on to a different one, because I don't like to spend too much time on abortion-related issues when it's just dudes on the show. Um, but I think we're probably just about to the end of this anyway. I guess my stance would be then, I agree with you for the most part, except that I would say I would be happy with any other method of doing it simply because it would cause less harm, less like physical damage, even like less surgical stuff than just doing something like the traditional abortions that, um, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's less room for possible harm to the pregnant person because every time you conduct a surgery on someone that creates an opportunity for infection or complications or anything like that. And I feel like the simplest method would be the best in that case, especially if the end result is going to be the same. Like in your scenario, I don't think we could be, we would be incompatible if we just said in the situations where someone has a open artificial womb waiting, then have the baby and do that. Um, and then in the situations where you know you're just going to evict a fetus and it's going to die in minutes anyway, then you may as well just do the least damage to the person who is carrying it then. You know what I mean? Uh, I know what you mean, but I think, uh, you know, it, that there is no legal justification for why you're allowed to murder that baby there. Just because it would be more convenient for you is not a uh, proper argument. I totally get You know what? That actually makes a lot of sense. And I think let's just wrap up that issue and move on to the next thing, which I think is a crux of both this issue and a lot of the disagreements we have in general, which is that you have things that are very logically consistent, maybe, but I think just in reality, they sound like bad ideas. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, sure. But I mean, because something sounds like a bad idea uh, on its face, it doesn't mean it is a bad idea. Right, we need to no, actually but it just may go through the steps. Getting anyone to get on board with it. Well, whether anybody gets on board with it is kind of irrelevant to whether it's true. So, is this is this all academic for you? Like all of politics is it just purely academic? Uh, well, you know there is, of course, praxis involved, but that comes second to the actual theory. If you're engaging in praxis for falsehoods, then. You're not getting the world to be a better place at all because you're getting you're spreading falsehoods, right? I would rather have knowledge that what I'm preaching is in fact the truth, and I absolutely know that, and then start talking about it to people and trying to get people on board. Yeah, but what if the results from that truth, like this, is a point I keep saying in your Discord. You know, for anybody who's not aware, since I'm broadcasting, I've been in Liquid Zulu Discord a couple times a day. It's fun. You guys are at least entertaining, like, uh, we call it humoring me. But um, I don't know. I mean, what is the, if you, if you follow these things that are logically consistent, but then they lead to results that are horrifying on a human level, what is, I, I don't understand why that's better than doing something that may be logically inconsistent, but then leads to better results for actual people. Well, I mean, I think the results are entirely uh, unknowable, at least uh, a large amount of them are. You know, a lot of my policies I advocate are, uh, you know, an unhampered market. And we know absolutely with necessity that uh, an unhampered market in the long run will have greater uh, welfare than a hampered market in the long run. We know that that is ne necessarily the case. I would right? disagree but, 
but like uh, in the short run it might be bad for some people you have the uh, as i described in the last episode the uh, sort of uh, recessionary period where you know people are coming to grips with like you know all this property being allocated back where it's supposed to be because it's been misallocated for so long and you know that could be painful for some people which is why these uh, consequentialist arguments uh, they are completely unconvincing uh, so if I'm high time preference and I'm benefiting from all this crime you know just saying to me hey but in the long run it'll be better I, I, I don't care about the long run I only care about the short run so and I know that the government benefits me in the short run because I'm on welfare or I have a good government job or whatever Right, and that's why you have to make these principled arguments about okay, right, it is objectively the case that this is how things ought to be done. Whether you like it or not is irrelevant. Yeah, it's an interesting uh it's an interesting outlook. There was uh, a thing that you said a second ago. It was a uh, it was a word that I wanted you to explain, consequentialism. Could you explain that a little bit? So, uh, consequentialism is uh, any ethical position where, which asserts that whether something ought be done is determined by the, the results that this will have, uh, however you want to frame it. Like, you know, uh, utilitarianism would be a type of consequentialism where you have some sort of uh, way that you think that you can measure utils and then you say, hey, the action which will most spread utils, the action which will maximize utility, that is the action which ought to be taken. This is just a complete non sequitur because just because it will have some outcome, it does not imply that it ought be done. Right? You have to sneak through an ought that, well, we ought to maximize utility for the instance of utilitarianism. That's a snuck premise, right? One which needs to be explicitly stated and demonstrated to be true. Libertarians, we love explicitly uh, stating our ethical theses and saying, right, it couldn't be any other way. Because if you try and deny this thesis of the NAP, you end up contradicting yourself. So it cannot be any other way. We don't, we don't sneak these theses past, you know, through the Sally Port or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess um, my argument for consequentialism, I guess, I didn't realize I was a consequentialist until about five minutes ago, but my argument for that would be, I guess, just again, that you, you may have the better, quote unquote, better system, logically, you know, as we typically say on paper, but if it leads to people not getting basic necessities, if it leads to hoarding of resources that people should otherwise have access to, like situations like we were describing last time, if it leads to the results that we've seen from you know, what the version of capitalism that exists in the real world so far, um, then I don't think that's the good system. I think that's the whole thing about it. It's like you can be technically right, but if your results are horrible for people that exist, then it's just not, it's not only not the best system, but it's also not going to be stable enough to last and outcompete others. And I just feel like the, the, the better way to go about it would be to if you want to actually talk about utility, like the utilitarian system would be to do the most good for the most people. And I don't think that unhindered markets, I know that you kind of take that as like a, just a true fact that unhindered markets lead to the best results for everybody. But I don't find that to be the case. And I've never, I don't know, I haven't seen any good examples of that happening. And that's what I was saying before the episode, I looked up uh, Prax Ben's recent video on Acadia, which was called an, an anarcho-capitalist success story. 
and the fact that it doesn't exist anymore kind of proves that wrong, at least to me. Well, just because something, you know, stops existing, it doesn't mean that it was uh, ethically incoherent or anything like that. Like, we could imagine, like, you know, uh, I'm sure this happened at some point somewhere. Like, during the time when slavery was all over the place, everywhere, everywhere had slaves. You know, if you had some village where they're like, you know what, we're not going to have slavery anymore. And, you know, they're just some small village, and then, you know, uh, three years down the line, some, like, you know, lord or czar or whatever comes through and bulldozes this village to put another palace or whatever. Right? It's like, yeah, yeah, see? Their system didn't last very long. Well, I mean, because it didn't last very long, that does not imply that they were wrong for abolishing slavery, right? They were correct for abolishing slavery. That was the correct thing to do. And we know that it's the correct thing to do only via principled argumentation. And I'll uh, go on to the uh, the, w my proof for why unhampered markets are necessarily, you will necessarily have a greater general standard of welfare than a hampered market. And basically what that means is, uh, the reason why that is, sorry, is that a hampered market, you're having some uh, destruction of wealth. You are reallocating resources in some way away from the people who actually own them towards someone else. But then we consider, okay, how is it that these people came to own these things in the first place? Well, there are a few ways. Either they homesteaded it, i.e. they took it out of nature, like, you know, if I want to, you know, grab a bit of wood off a tree, then I own it. So that's homesteading. They could also be trading it, right? They could trade it with someone else who has homesteaded it. Or they could be producing it. So, uh, you know, they could use some amount of... Uh, widgets that they have taken out of nature and they combine these in some way to make something new right so it's producing homesteading and trading those are the only three ways you can come to acquire some property uh, so if you're reallocating property away from the genuine owners you're reallocating away from people who have done these costly actions of producing homesteading or trading so you are raising the relative uh, opportunity cost of producing homesteading and trading. So you should expect less pr producing homesteading and trading to occur. But it's exactly those three things that is how we generate new wealth in society. So you are enacting a tendency away from getting more wealth. Yeah, I mean, again, it just sounds logically consistent. I just don't understand why uh, there hasn't been some kind of successful anarcho-capitalist society that then also poses a threat to existing global quote-unquote capitalism. Well, the reason why there hasn't been, uh, you know, uh, well, I mean, I think there has been plenty of successful anarcho-capitalist societies, actually. It just, you know, they ended up getting, you know, bludgeoned over the head by some state out there, right? And that's, that's the reality of the world. It's possible for better systems to get completely destroyed by these criminals, because that's what the state are, they're a bunch of criminals. If they're able to institute themselves and embed themselves in society, and they're very, very good at doing that, then it can be very difficult to remove them. Mm -hmm. um, one example I have is uh, medieval Iceland. Uh, during the saga period, uh, like 980 to uh, about 1300, I think it was, maybe 1200. Uh, basically, I have a whole video on this where uh, they had many, many, many natural law elements. They were this close to being anarchist. 
they had a few little niggling points of uh, statism. And it was precisely those statist elements in their society which led to their downfall and led to them being retaken by King Harald Fairhair. Like, if you didn't have those statist elements, their society would be fine. I'll go over one of those elements, basically. Uh, they had a legretto, which was their national like legislator, where they made, like, uh, hear ye, hear ye, we're making new laws and stuff like that. And the way you could, they were, it was democratic as well, which is a problem. And uh, all of the chieftains would, uh, you, you had to be a chieftain in order to vote at the legretto, and you could only be a chieftain if the other chieftains agreed to make you a chieftain, which is mm, less than ideal. And uh, it's because of this, because of these, you know, uh, non-free entry into the chieftaincy profession where when the church came along and they were like hey we're gonna make uh, you know a new religion here it's called Christianity uh, but we need to have a tithe which will be paid by the people to uh, maintain churches this was a tax essentially and all the Gothi uh, the chieftains sorry I'll call them by their English name um, these, these, these chieftains they of course made themselves the recipients of this tax, because they made themselves the leaders of the churches. So you now had a property tax, which you couldn't opt out of at all. If you lived anywhere, you'd be living near some church. And so that local ch church, the chieftain who owns that church would say, hey, you give me money. And this led to a massive accumulation of power within the hands of uh, five families, I think it was. And these five families owned basically all of Iceland. And this led to a civil war which was so intolerably violent to the Icelanders that uh, they ended up asking uh, Harald Fairhair to come in and invade and take it over. But interestingly enough, this intolerably violent civil war, which is nothing like they'd ever experienced in their lives, well, it had a lower amount of deaths per capita than like the current murder rate in New York. And this was intolerably violent to these Icelanders, which shows you just how fantastically peaceful it was before. Yeah, it was like the World War One, and this is yeah. like what around what year this is? Is this like medieval? I think I think it was around uh, twelve hundred AD. I'm not sure though. I can uh, I can look it up. It's in my script for the video, but around about then. Has anybody? I know I've heard of people trying to have like anarcho-capitalist communities, like on you know what do you call them, like sea sea th like things out on the ocean or something. Seasteading. Yeah. Um, how have those gone? Um, I'm not sure how successful the Seastead Institute is currently. I know um, there are a couple working Seasteads. Uh, I think it's probably a decent way off from actually having a city on the ocean. But, I mean, the technology isn't that crazy. I mean, we have cruise ships the size of cities, which sail on the ocean for years and years and years, right? So it's it's not completely technologically impossible that we get this. It's just, you know, not a lot of people want to go out and live in the ocean. Yeah. Uh, better uh, projects I've seen is well, I mean the current Argentinian president. He's an anarcho-capitalist. That's a pretty big win there, right there. Now we have the Free State Project in New Hampshire, where they're trying to secede from the United States. You don't think that's a little ironic that he's a president and he says he's an anarcho-capitalist? That's not ironic. No, it's like um, you know, well, it's or defensive. Right? It's, it's saying, hey, I'm going to get into the be a politician and I'm going to start removing all these aggressive legislations. Right? What's he doing? So, do you know what his focus is? Uh, not really, because I don't speak whatever they speak there. I think it's Portuguese or something. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not keeping up with it. But yeah, I, I, mean, you know, I didn't I, even know that he wasn't a narco capitalist until you said it. Yeah. 
it's it's very it's a very good thing it's basically he got in off like the same sort of charisma and stuff that trump got in mm-hmm. this guy actually cares about rights so you know i'd be interested to see what he cuts because you know i'm just going to do the stupid commie thing and assume that he's cutting like social programs and things that help well, people and stuff that help women and lgbt people and i would say that that if that is the case again haven't looked into it have no clue but i'm just saying if that were the case that would be very telling as to like the priorities of anarcho-capitalists well i think uh you know you said there that it's these projects which help people but i disagree entirely that welfare does in fact help people if you have like you know let's say Let's just let's just see if we would agree on the subsidy point. If if I was the president of the universe and I said, "Hear ye, hear ye!" For every bushel of corn sold, I will double the amount that gets paid to the farmer. Right. So we I have a subsidy on corn production. Do you think corn production would go up? I have no idea. I mean, you're so now everybody knows that hey. If I start producing corn, I'll get paid a lot more because Liquid Zulu, president of the universe, is going to get me money for producing corn. So do you think that's going to raise corn production? Yeah, I guess um, I could grant that. I'm just, I'll just say I'm a dumb commie. I don't understand basic economics. That's fine. I would just, the point I was trying to get at is that the state would naturally arise. Like, I don't think of welfare as the same way that you do. Like, I think of welfare as something that people would make happen in a capitalist situation once wealth concentrated enough that they decided they needed to band together and form even some kind of de facto unions and then the state would arise out of that because it's a product of class antagonism basically and it's like as long as some people are able to amass a bunch of wealth a bunch of wealth and if they use that in any way whether they use it to wield power over others if they use it to hire private forces to be, allow them to dominate others then people will naturally revolt against that and they will create some form of a state, even if it's like a loose version of it. Well, the reason why I bring up the corn example is because like, well, if corn production is going to go up when you start subsidizing corn production, we look over to welfare and we say, hey, welfare, that's also a subsidy. Let's say if I have a welfare where everybody who breaks their leg, I'll give them a thousand dollars. You're going to see more people breaking their legs because, you know, I might break my leg if I want a thousand dollars. It's easy money, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. You, should, you should see people on that margin where, you know, they might be willing to break their leg, but eh, they're not going to get any money out of it. And it's like, hey, I'm going to give you a bunch of money if you do that, bro. Well, eh, I'll do it. I'll break my leg. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's. No, I think that's actually fine. Like, I would actually be for thousand dollar leg breaks, uh, just like I'm for basic housing and nutrition and healthcare and education because i feel like just like the leg breaking example a certain number of people would be fine with the shitty com block apartment and the basic government healthcare and the basic government nutrition and education and everything and they may just stay home being pieces of shit and not doing anything and being like neats as they call them but uh no i think most people would want to do more and just like you're saying, most people would not take a leg break for $1,000 because it wouldn't be worth it to them. I think most people would actually want to work and do something meaningful, meaningful, especially if it could be something that they weren't alienated from. Like They could see the product of that and the returns from it in their community, which is the goal of communism. Right, but the real crux of this is, that let's say I have a subsidy on unemployed people. 
mm-hmm. because that's going to encourage pe- more people to be unemployed. So whatever you welfareize, so long as it's within people's control, like I couldn't subsidize, uh, you know, some random event like, I don't know, uh, getting cancer, right? Let's assume that you can't inf- increase your chances of getting cancer, right? That, that wouldn't increase cancer rates by subsidizing it. By subsidizing something like unemployment, I'm going to see more unemployed people. I'm exacerbating the issue. But I thought we had already established that there would be a certain number of people who would take the thousand dollar leg break and a certain number of people that it wasn't worth it to and i thought the same right there, there that, so you that is the case it, but it doesn't mean it's yeah. going to be catastrophic or ruin the society but no matter how much you're subsidizing it you're still encouraging it more than it should be encouraged you're going to have more people who are unemployed than should be unemployed well what are we talking about here we're we talking about like in a situation where you're not subsidizing it you have like unemployment like the u.s has where there's very little social programs and people try to avoid unemployment if they possibly can. You have like numbers in the five to seven percent usually. And then if you subsidize it and you actually provide people with basic necessities, then you get what, like 13, 20? It's like, I don't think, again, I don't think it leads to the collapse of society like capitalists tend to fearmonger. Well, it's certainly uh, getting close to the collapse of society, right? Because right. you're destroying wealth. Whenever you're engaged in any welfare, you're necessarily destroying wealth uh, through taxation for that welfare and uh, you're therefore necessarily raising time preferences which is decivilizing um yeah i don't know i just i guess so why aren't states that have more social programs like the scandinavian model even or socialist countries why aren't they having like the same instability that the u.s has they, they absolutely do have massive issues. They are way worse off than they would be without any taxation. Uh, I guess. I mean, yeah, I just don't see it that way. I, th- I see the U.S. becoming increasingly unstable, and yeah, because it has a it has a huge central bank, right? That's essentially the same effect as taxation. They have a fiat currency through central banking. And they, you know, start engaging in fractional reserve uh, banking, which basically is the driving force of the business cycles that we see. So, you know, every few years it's like, oh, we're in a recession now. Oh, no, but now we're, the economy's booming. Yeah, we're all booming. It's all having fun. And it goes back into a recession, then back into a boom, bust, boom, bust, over and over and over again. This isn't a natural cycle. It doesn't just exist. Right, this isn't just something which happens. It's being caused, it's being driven by the Federal Reserve muddling with the interest rates. This muddling with interest rates by, you know, throwing a bunch of money, new money into the economy. It basically, it causes people to invest in the wrong projects. And um, we saw this in 2008, people, a bunch, bunch of people invested like in a bunch of housing projects, which nobody wanted the housing so it was a it was a wrong investment which we call a malinvestment and we've seen this come to fruition in china as well now they're having to demolish entire cities because just they, people built way too much stuff and the real issue with ask that you about the uh the china collapse thing because that was something that i've been seeing on all the youtube videos in the last couple of months was like china's going to collapse in 47 days or in so many days and it's like we must have hit that day by now, right? Like, where's the collapse? Well, I, I don't know if they're going to collapse, but they're going to have a, a lot of serious problems, right? Because now they're in this... They're going to be going into this awful recession because all these projects 
that were be they shouldn't have been invested in in the first place. You don't think they they can handle a recession better with a planned economy when they can just control <laughs> the, the the reason why they have the recession in the first place is because of the central planning. But right? then so does so do the U.S. has plenty of recessions. Yeah, because it yeah. has a bunch of fucking central planning. I mean, it's not so, capitalist, right? Well, I know you say that, but so we would describe the U.S. as hyper-capitalist and China as socialist, other countries as socialist. And we say the difference is the government here works very blatantly in favor of wealthy people, in favor of corporations, and does not do what citizens want it to do. Whereas, like, in socialist countries, they are more democratic, get much higher approval ratings for the actions that the government takes, the five- and ten-year plans, the social programs that they do deliver on, and I think there's a reason for that. And I would love to hear, like, you describe what you think the difference is between a country like China or a country like America. If they're both just socialist, then what is the difference there? I mean, every country, uh, every state, I should say, they are working in the interests of at least some set of wealthy people, i.e. those set of wealthy people who are directly benefiting and getting massive kickbacks from the state, right? The people who are having wealth redistributed towards them. Right, that happens in, with every single state ever, because, you know, they need to buy up uh, some support, right? That's, if they don't buy up any support, then people are going to, you know, have a way, do away with them. I would say the different, there are definitely differences between different states, right? There are differences in the exact way that they're set up, and, you know, democratic states will do something in this way, whereas a monarchy might do it in this other way, right? And, you know, you can analyze those differences, and there's a whole book by Hopper called Democracy, the God That Failed, where he's basically analyzing the differences between monarchies and mo democracies. And he's saying, well, look, uh, these democracies, they all tend to be far more destructive of private property than the democracies. Oh, sorry, the, the monarchies, right. I mix that up. I actually just listened to a really interesting episode of uh, a podcast that I like called The East is a Podcast, and they talked about democracies. And they were saying that it was a pretty spicy episode. They were actually making the case that democracies are not good for development. And I thought that was pretty interesting from a, another Marxist podcast to do that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think uh, to me, it comes down to democracies under capitalism as opposed to actual democracies that are able to remove the influence of money. I mean, what do you mean by remove the influence of money? Like holding rich people accountable when they are corrupt and they try to influence the political process. I mean, no democracy is going to hold accountable the state which implements it. That's simply impossible. Right? The state can buy up people's votes. And in fact, uh, you know, the reason why a democracy is so bad is that, especially when you've got term limits, is you have leaders will tend to be high time preference, right? So you vote in some leader and then he knows, right, I've only got four years to get up as much wealth from the country as I possibly can into my personal coffers. And, you know, so they're going to implement a bunch of really, really high time preference policies, which is going to really sap all the wealth from the nation and give it to them. And then when they're out, they just fuck off, right? They, they've got a nice cushy job with a bunch of money, which yeah. they got thanks to all this plundering. Whereas a monarchy, if I'm a monarch, I know, right, okay, I've got an entire, my entire lifetime, and I can even pass it down onto my children. So I'm going to want to be real subtle with my expropriation of wealth, because the more you expropriate, the worse uh, the wealth generation in the country is. You'll be generating less and less and less wealth. 
which is a problem if you have a really long time where you need to be taking wealth from the nation. If you take it all immediately, suddenly the nation plummets and you've got no more wealth generation capacity. The monarch will t has, an, has an incentive to take less wealth from people than a democrat does. Yeah, I guess it still is all with the caveat of having the profit motive be at the root of this person's actions. If you have a system where this person is, on, is able to do that and they're not held accountable, they don't have any kind of transparency, there's not some kind of democratic process that holds them accountable, then yeah, of course they're going to try to rob the state blind or the coffers blind, but if you have a transparent system with accountability, you can, you can not you can avoid that from you can prevent that from happening. Sorry, stumbling over myself. Well, there is always going to be the uh, profit motive. That there is always a profit motive at the base of every single action you always take. Uh, you are taking action A instead of action B because you expect that action A will benefit you more than action B. That's a profit. So you know, and the whole setup of the state is that it is expropriating wealth from people towards itself. Maybe it divvies some out to other people, right? Mm -hmm. To get them on their side, right? So you are going to have this expropriation no matter what, right? So you can't, like a, a democratic nation, it's set up that way. It, the state itself is set up that way. The only way you can remove that ability of the leader to start expropriating for people is if you don't have a state at all. And that's what I'm proposing. I'm proposing no state at all. And then you don't have any of this expropriation. You could, you could have a state. You can have organizations. You can have all kinds of structures of power that are democratically accountable and transparent. And then you can hold somebody accountable that way. And I, I mean, I don't know. It just sounds very cynical to me. Like, I pride myself on being the most cynical person on my show, but you sound even more cynical than me. Like, there's always a profit motive. Like, everyone who's in power is greedy. Like, no one can have any kind of motive other than just pure selfish greed. And I also find it interesting, like, when you said, every decision is a profit. It's like, you could actually set up a system in such a way where people's decisions are to take personal profit in the form of actual money, or to continue to keep their position by keeping the people below them happy that they are accountable to. And that would be a profit in that way. Like they get to continue operating within the party. They get to continue keeping their position. I'll just, um, you know, clarify what Austrians mean when we talk about profit. We're not talking about getting money right money that is a type of profit if you uh want that money yeah that's, but what, I mean. I think really, I that, that's what i'm saying if you set up the decision in such a way where the person in power has a it, their choice is to either be corrupt and allow bribery per, take the bribes themselves or to root out corruption and keep the system democratically accountable and you make it more quote-unquote profitable for them to make the better decision in that case what's wrong with well, that I'll just, you know, this whole democratically accountable uh, atom you throw in there, that's, that's not going to stop people from uh, expropriating wealth. Rather, it'll make them expropriate a lot more wealth, right? So you could imagine, uh, I'm a democratically elected leader, I'm the president of the world, right? And I say, hey, uh, there's this small group of people here, uh, they make up a tiny, tiny fraction of the population, they make a bunch of money. They got a bunch of money. They got stacks, bro. Uh, this is the set of rich people, the most rich people around. I'm going to take a lot of their money and divvy it out to all these different interest groups. 
right? A little bit, but, you know, a lot to myself as well, of course, of course, I gotta. And now all those interest groups, the majority of the population, they're going to want to vote for me because I'm, I keep saying, hey, I'm going to keep taking that money from those wealthy people and giving it to you. So these people, you know, the schlubs, they're like, hey, yeah, great. I want money. I want free money. Let's tax those rich, baby. And you see this all the time. See it all the time, right? Where a democratically elected leader is saying, hey, I'm going to fight this group here, this tiny minority group, because they can't possibly win a vote against all of you guys. I'm going to take their wealth and give it to you. And then everyone's like, yeah, hell yeah, screw that group. And the more you can demonize them, the easier this gets, right? And you can just sap away the wealth of some minority in favor of the majority and in favor of yourself, of course. Yeah, I just feel like there's a lot of assumptions in there because, again... There's no assumptions. That's just, that is just a genuine strategy which you can implement if you want to be yeah, just But there's a lot of assumptions about being able to hide that wealth. Like... Wealth is numbers on paper, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, so it's not to... numbers on paper. It's like there's also capital. cash. I mean, there's cash as well. I mean, you can only do so much backdoor deals through cash, but then... I mean, it's, you don't even have to hide it, right? If you have those people on your side, the majority of people on your side, mm -hmm. then you're not going to lose that election. But you're who are these majority people? Like you say special interest, and then you're saying this person just creates enough different and diverse special interest groups that they have the majority of the people on their side at some point. That's just democracy. It's like if you get to right, that point yeah, where it is the just majority democracy. of people That's are in special interest groups, well then special interest groups are meaningless at that point. Because if everyone well, is a special you know, interest group, then they all have the same power. When I say like special interest group, I mean like, you know, okay, right, I'm going to do subsidies for the farmers because then the farmers will vote for me. I'm going to do subsidies for the elderly because then the elderly vote for me. I'm going to do subsidies for the Hispanics because then the Hispanics will, you know, you just meld these together and then you get up to the majority. But the general form is, hey, I'm going to extract wealth from this small set A in favor of this bigger set B. And this bigger set B, in fact, makes up the majority of the entire population. I'm going to take wealth from these guys and give them to these guys. And then these guys are going to want to vote for me. Uh, these guys won't, but I don't care, right? Because they can't vote, they can't outvote this block. And that's the problem with democracy. Well, it's one of the problems. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I kind of want to move on to like a different topic. I feel like um, this sure. is definitely not as spicy as the last one. I'm not as entertaining as my co-host, unfortunately. But... um. I kind of want to ask, like, why hasn't Elon Musk or Peter Thiel or one of those guys, like, bought a section of land somewhere and tried to create in Kapistan? Do they just not believe in it? Like, do they understand that their wealth is generated through government subsidies and everything? Uh, potentially, right? But, I mean, Elon Musk, he's not even, he's like a, you know, a enlightened centrist, one of those fucking jerk-offs. He's, he's not, he's not an ANCAP, he doesn't understand philosophy at all. Uh, well, you know, well, one thing, sorry to interrupt, but I have heard that both of them are influenced by this Mencius Moldbug dude. Are you familiar with him? Have you heard of him? Yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah. What do you think uh, of that guy? Eh. Uh, you know, it, it just, uh, I haven't read any of his work because I hear it's very long and boring. Mm. Uh, but I mean, he's not an ANCAP by any stretch of the imagination. The he is? Uh, I think uh, the way it's described is he wants like some sort of, uh, you know, uh, techno fascism oh, with like feudal, right? uh, yeah, he he's like techno fascism with Chinese characteristics or whatever, you know, like 
uh he's uh yeah he's a he's a weird one i i don't care about him and the people who keep like fucking nattering on about him they're so annoying that i'm like well i don't want to be fucking that annoying so i'm not gonna read him fair enough i don't like him either um yeah i don't know i guess uh i was saying this to other people in your discord i feel like my approach to ancaps is the same as like the approach to anarcho-communist it's like good luck like go ahead and get it done i don't know it just seems like um you guys are in the realm of theory you guys are like there's a book i like by charles dickens i had to read it in college it's called the pickwick papers and it's really funny because he's describing all these really well-off dudes in england and they go to like this country club and they hang out all the time and they just call themselves very philosophical gentlemen and they just talk about like high intellectual things all the time and then they're like stepping over poor people every time they leave the club and they go to their carriage to get back home or whatever. And that's just what it all kinds of kind of seems like to me. It seems like a bunch of people kind of sitting around talking about very high ideas. And then in reality, like, I don't know what the, you talk about ANCAP practice, but I don't know what that really looks like. But I also, I mean, you can talk well, you're about look, it. You're looking at it right now. You're looking at it what, right now. Talking about stuff. Why, why do you think I started the channel? Well, yeah, I mean, that's why I did, too. I mean, I'm trying to yeah. convince people that communism is cool, but, like, I don't know if I would even call what I'm doing practice. Like, this is the very basis. Like, this is just getting people familiar with the ideas and getting them to understand, like, just how much the U.S. government lies to them about socialism, every existing socialist country, past and present, and to go from there. But the actual praxis on the left is, like, mutual aid. Uh, somebody was asking me in my comments earlier on Instagram, they were like, what do we do besides voting? Because I was like shit talking voting because it's just fucking stupid. And they were like, well, what do we do besides voting? Like, what can we realistically do? And I replied to them jokingly. I just said parentheses redacted. But the real answer, I'll have to respond to them later, is to do either things that are so revolutionary that you can't really say them. Like, you can't say what like revolutionary action would be without getting yeah, arrested. Speak, that was just, their, like, just say uh, speaking French as opposed to speaking German. Mm -hmm. And then, but in reality, like, I don't know, the left understanding of that is you have to get so many people on board with it that you would have to be able to realistically take over the country with it and reform it into something new. And until you get to that point, it's just kind of useless adventurism. But well, the I mean, more reasonable practice, sorry, just real quick, the more reasonable practice is just things like mutual aid and stuff that is like boring, that just looks like kind of volunteer and charity work. But go ahead. Right. Uh, so that more boring stuff, that's just living by your principles, essentially. Like, you know, I want this in the world, so I'm going to start doing it myself. But the more, you know, interesting praxis, actually, uh, it wasn't us who came up with it, it was the Bolsheviks. They were like, you know, 50 dudes, and suddenly, you know, a couple months later, they took over all of Russia. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but it was somewhere like that, yeah. They, 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 they had nobody, but they managed to take over so much because of some very good strategic thinking. And, you know, right now, we're speaking German. You know, we're playing things slow, just getting enough of the population who un to understand anarcho-capitalism uh, such that, you know, the public opinion will be in a favourable state. And when the public opinion is favourable enough, the state can't do shit, right? Because there are a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of the population makes up the state. Uh, 99 plus percent of everybody else is being robbed by the state. If those people reject that robbery, on mass, state can't do shit about it. They they don't have the power to overwhelm that many people. You see this all the time. 
And that's when people start speaking French. And so that is that the vision, the ANCAP vision? Because I asked this in the Discord, but I haven't checked any responses yet. But I asked, what is the ANCAP vision for the future of the U.S.? And is that what it is? Is like the destabilization to the point where it doesn't even need to be like a quote-unquote revolution. Like it just gets so weak that it can't control itself anymore. And then the U.S. kind of balkanizes into like anarcho-communes or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so like, you know, just at some point, ideally... And this is ideally what would happen is at some point, you know, the state just withers and fucking dies, right? All of its constituent parts keep seceding into smaller and smaller and smaller nations until eventually uh, it's, you have anarchy, right? If you keep seceding infinitely down, the limit of that is anarchy. And, you know, this could take a very long time. It could be like boiling the frog. It could be so slow, right? But eventually it will work. But the only way you can get that to work is if you shift public opinion, this is actually uh, analogized to Marxist terminology, where if you have the correct class consciousness, then, uh, you know, we can have our goals achieved. Because this is, this is actually, uh, if you're a fan of Marxism stuff, you should read Hopper's paper on uh, what Marx gets right. Because Hopper's uh, thesis is that, well, the core theses of Marxism are on their face correct, but he just has a faulty class theory. I think it's Austrian Marxist class analysis is the name of the paper, actually. So his class theory is the bourgeois versus the proletariat, right? But if you replace that with the state versus those expropriated by the state, all the theses make sense. Uh, you know, you can make perfectly good justifications for those theses. Yeah, I mean, I guess the Marxist conception of that is what, just to use the state as the tool to wither away the class uh, antagonism. But that, that's the difference there. That's why you need a proper class theory. That's why you need Hoppian class theory, is because it, it would be like a Marxist saying, well, let's use the proletariat as a tool to wither away the proletariat. It's not going to happen. Right? You can't use the state as a tool to wither away the state. You're, you're advancing the state, right? And using the state as a tool, it's very like, uh, well, let's, uh, there's a group of people uh, I call neoprags, where they're like, well, I mean, you're going to be the most principled person on the boxcars. Uh, like, well, I mean, you're, you're going to be the person driving it because you want to use the state to ban businesses from excluding unmasked people or whatever. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that is kind of how we conceive of it, I guess just want to use the authority to protect people who are unable to protect themselves. And that was actually something I wanted to drill, drill down on from last time. Uh, that was kind of where we ended. I was talking about the difference between leftists and Nazis, or just any fascists. And to reiterate, the people who want to discriminate against people for things that they were born with and cannot control, and then anti-fascists wanting to stop those people from doing that. And that being the difference between content of your character versus the color of your skin. Um, I don't know, did you have anything else on that? Because I remember the last thing you said about that was it just means we have no ethic. And that seems to me like a very solid ethic. I'm not sure the exact context of uh, my argument there, but I mean, I'll just say I was probably saying I was like, well, because you know, there was that one guy, I can't remember his name, 
it was like, yeah, I, I agree that this is this is uh, it shouldn't be done. I can't justify the way that it should be done, but I'm gonna do it. And I was like, well, I mean, you don't have an ethic there, bro. I think that was it. It's just it is not just to prevent someone from associating how they wish to associate. It's simply not just to do that, and you cannot propose that it's just to do that without contradicting yourself. Yeah, so I don't think of it as stopping people from free association. I don't think that's what Marxists have a problem with. I think I would say we have a problem with certain ideas, those ideas being fascist ideas. And we would pursue those, like, you know, like exterminate those if we can. So it's not about like association. It's just like what you want to do. Like, I know you guys see it as violence to stop fascists, but we see that as preventing the violence from happening. And again, if you take fascists at their word that what they want to do is violence against marginalized people, then you should stop them, from, stop them from doing that. And then if they learn in the process and they stop being fascist, then fantastic. But if they don't, then I guess you proceed accordingly. I mean, if I take you at your word, you want to also engage in violence against people who don't deserve it. Right? So, I mean, if, that, if it's just to go ahead and you know, start bonking fascists... It's just to go ahead and start bonking you. Well, no, because that gets back to that difference that I was saying. Because fascists want to stop people who have qualities that they have no control over, and then anti-fascists want to stop those fascists. So the fascists have created the the problem and the conflict with their intent to do violence for things to, to people for things they cannot control, and then anti-fascists want to stop them. Like you get what I mean, right? Right, but why is it relevant that they can't control these characteristics? Why is that relevant? Like, the motive for the crime, I don't see at all the relevancy of the motive. So that the relevance is, is, like, again, the content of their character versus the color of their skin. People have chosen voluntarily held beliefs like fascism, where they hate people for things they cannot control. Whereas there's other people, like I said before, they can't make the fascists happy unless they stop existing. Whereas the fascists could just stop being fascists. Right, but I, I still don't see why the motive for violence is relevant to whether or not that violence is just. It doesn't even have to be violence. It could just be detention. It could be re-education. It could be anything that stops these well, people. Well, that's, from... that's, that's violent, right? Taking someone and throwing them in a camp, that's violent. I mean, you could definitely children. say that it is violence. I think that it is more passive than killing people and attempting to... In, in any case, it's uh, going to be aggression, right? You're aggressing against them and... All aggression is on. Yeah, just. I'm just cool with it. Is all. You're cool with, like, some aggression like against fascists. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, but like, this is an unjust. This is unjustifiable. You can't justify that that position. But I so this is my whole thing, and I keep going back to the whole. You guys are on this level where you're talking about like theory ideas, and I'm here in reality. It's like you could have the quote unquote logic on your side, but. I don't know. And just like with this whole conversation, it's like there's no metaphysical judge sitting here judging your, what you're saying and what I'm saying against like the platonic forms. Or it's like there's people listening to this and then some people will con be convinced by what I'm saying, which is it's OK to stop fascists from hurting people who cannot stop. You know, I mean, who, who cannot control why these fascists want to hurt them. And then people are going to hear you say, well, that's unjust and it's not right. And it makes you sound like a fascist sympathizer. And I'm not saying that that's the case, but I'm just saying that's how it sounds. Right, I mean, you saying 
Now, well, some people will be convinced by what I'm saying, and some people will be convinced by... If, if they're convinced by what you're saying, they are being convinced by something that you yourself say uh, you can't justify. It, you're, they're being convinced by a false ethic, something which you know that you cannot justify. You, you yourself said that I have the logic on my side. Well, me having the logic on my side no, I said is you a concession. May, quote unquote, I did the air quotes and everything for people who are just listening to this on the podcast. You may, quote unquote, have the logic on your side, but it really just comes down to how many people you can get on your side with that, because I think that my argument is just as convincing. I think it is wrong to want to kill people for the color of their skin, for qualities that they were born with and cannot control. And I think it is right to stop the people who want to do that. And I don't, I don't see, maybe I'm using the wrong words. Like maybe it is utilitarian to stop people who have genocidal intentions because that is what creates a stable society as opposed to an unstable one. And that's why capitalist societies are becoming more and more unstable because they don't resolve that. Well, let's be a little more concrete, right? Because, you, you know, you throw the little me at him in there. Do, do you think I don't have uh, the logic on my side? Do you think I'm incorrect in my assertion that aggression is unjust? Yeah, I think you're wrong. That I mean, okay, I mean you, you may be able to prove it with, like, Okay, some... so uh, do you think I can prove a falsehood? I don't... Like, you can write whatever you want on paper and you can make it sound good and you can make it seem like it's like logical. It's not about sounding good, it's about actually proving it, right? Do you think I could prove that aggression is unjust if it were false that aggression was unjust? No, I don't know how you, like, what does that look like mathematically? Is that how you do it? Like with logic it, and like a, a proof? Like, yeah, that's, that's the thing. What would that even look like? What, do it, what would it look like to prove a falsehood? Because anything which you've proven is a truth, right? That's what it means to prove something. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I like, guess you can definitely yeah. write on paper, aggression is bad, and I can't disprove that. But I would say stopping aggression is then... But I, but I could prove it, right? That's the thing. I can also just say stopping aggression is good by that. Same, it's like, doesn't it seem like the algebra? Yeah, sure, stop, stopping, yeah, stopping aggression is indeed good. That's not what you're proposing, though. You're not proposing to stop a bunch of gnats, uh, you know, a bunch of clansmen and hoods trying to, uh, you know, lunch a black man. That's maybe a part of what you're proposing. Rather, you're specifically proposing that, well, this person has a bad belief, and so we should go ahead and uh, do whatever unspeakable things to this person well, because of their belief. But I think that, that I think you're helping them. Just like you would help anybody who doesn't have any education. You should, that's a good thing to give them education. And I think that that is the issue with people who want to discriminate against others for things they can't control. I think that's the problem with fascists is that they need education. So is your ethic just that, well, if we have these bad people, we should just try and educate them, not aggress against them? Well, if they resist the education, then what can you do other than detain them? If they're literally a threat to your forced society... Forced education is what you want to do. You know, one of your big issues with fascism was they had forced education. It's kind of ironic. That this no, is that's not one of my issues with fascism. One of my issues with fascism are that they want to kill people for their religion, their skin color, whatever, their sexuality. Right, so let's do uh, the forced education point. That is aggression. And aggressions are unjustifiable. Right, you can't justify an aggression because if you tried to, you'd contradict yourself. Yeah, I guess this is where we left off. I think last time, where 
you're calling the aggression, you're calling it an aggression. And I just don't think of it as an aggression to stop. But by definition, aggression. is an aggression. Uh, you are going to this person who is not aggressing against anyone. They're just having beliefs, you know, bad beliefs, mean beliefs, whatever you want to call them. And you are kidnapping them and forcing them into education, right? You have initiated a conflict over the use of their body right there. Right there. Uh, that is aggression, because aggression is defined as the initiation of conflict. So you have conflict, you have an aggression. <clears throat> okay, so... To me, that sounds like you want to wait until the fascists actually start hurting people, and then it's okay to stop them. Mm -hmm. so at what point is it okay to stop the fascists? Like, how much <clears throat> genocide do they have to do before it's okay? When, it, when a, an individual fascist, right, because I'm not a collectivist, so when an individual fascist, if they are trying to initiate a conflict with someone else, then you can stop them from initiating that conflict. And how does that work in practice? Like, do you, are they surveilled? Like, is there some kind of, like... You could surveil them well, as much as you want. Like... So, so long as you're not uh, initiating conflict, you can surveil them as much as you damn well please. Mm -hmm. right? You could follow them around all over the place, right? Provided you have yeah. the money to fund the private detective or the yeah. services to do that. Yeah, I mean, private detectives would probably be way cheaper if you didn't have all the socialist police running around. Yeah. Um, well, then, in that situation, it seems to me like it's inherently about how much wealth you have as to whether or not you can protect yourself from the fascist or anyone else. I mean, it's always true. If you have more means at your disposal, you can better accomplish different ends. It's right? always true in capitalism. No, it's just a fact of the universe, right? If you have greater means at your disposal, then you can more easily accomplish different ends. Right? I might have an end where I want to go to the moon tomorrow. Mm. I, don't, I, I don't have a rocket. Right? Yeah. If I had a rocket, then I could accomplish that end. Yeah, I suppose so. I don't know. I mean, I just don't like the uh, analogies, I suppose. That just doesn't seem like the most useful way to do it, but it seems to me like countries where they have social programs, they have social safety nets, they have uh, you know, less corrupt police forces, they are able to protect themselves and they don't need to rely on like private militias or private security guards or anything. Well, they're not able to protect themselves against the state, right? That's, that's a form of aggression which they kind of protect themselves against, right? I suppose so. Yeah, and I guess it just comes down to what you define as aggression or not, and you think the state is aggression, and it's inherently, and I don't. Um, I don't know, we're about... I mean, it is the initiation of conflict. start wrapping it up? Yeah, sure. Uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to pitch before we go? Any, like, final thoughts or anything? Yeah, no, that, that does it for me. Okay. I think this was uh, much calmer than the last one. Definitely not as spicy. I don't know. It's because it wasn't a huge ensemble debate. These ensemble debates, they necessarily always uh, devolve. Yeah, I thought that was way more fun, though. That was like so... That was so it, fun. it is fun, it is fun, but, you know, you can't end up completing any of your points. I want to... Sometimes it's fun to be in these huge panels, but sometimes I want to, like, get right down to the last step of the mm -hmm. proof. Well, I think I uh, said everything I wanted to say going into it. I guess that is kind of my final thought. It's just like with the end cap thing, it's just like, go for it, I guess. Like, good luck. I, I'm waiting to see the end cap project that, you know, starts threatening the U.S. or imperialism. Um, I don't know. That is, it seems to me like 
it's almost weird that we have kind of the same end goal. Like, I think a lot of Marxists would like to see the U.S. balkanize and shut down the 900 military bases around the world. I guess we just think that, that would also end global capitalism because that is the only thing that props it all up. But we could leave that for next time. Maybe that would be a little more spicy something we could talk about. Sure. Um, all right. Well, thanks again. I mean, uh, we'll yep. do this again soon, I suppose. Thank you. See ya. Take care. I mean, closing thoughts, eh? Uh, if you... I had a con full concession there. He conceded that uh, it is indeed the case that uh, he cannot justify his positions. That's victory, if I've ever seen one. Anyway, uh, see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast again. I'm PM, and I'm back to Liquid Zulu. How's it going, Zulu? Yeah, it's going all right. Uh, let's see. All right. All right, so then, uh, yeah, I just wanted to do this again. I figured we could do another hour, and uh, we talked before, I figured we could just, like, pick up where we left off. Um, do you remember any points that you made last time or that I made last time that you wanted to clarify or anything that you wanted to pick up on from last time? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I think I made myself... Uh pretty clear but i mean if there's any points contention you still see then fire away um well i mean i have a bunch of questions about like theoretical and cap land or whatever um what's i was gonna say um let's see like one i wrote down was how do you prevent a an end cap land from descending into industries that are profitable but not productive or like conducive to a functional society and the example I thought of was like tons of heroin dealers, but no rehab therapists because it would be not profitable for people to go see a therapist and cure them of their heroin addiction, but it's very profitable to just create more heroin addicts. I mean, you could, you could yourself uh, help to prevent that by becoming a, you know, addiction counselor or something that would uh, be praxis in favor of uh, less, you know, heroin junkies, right? That you can take that upon yourself to do. It's just that we don't want to force people to be counseling heroin junkies. Mm, yeah, I mean, I guess so. What is the incentive, though, to do that? Like, why would people do that as opposed to just becoming a heroin dealer themselves? Like, what is the. Well, why do people incentive? do it right now? Because they want to, like, have a functional society or they see some kind of need there. Or because they. Right, just, but why couldn't you know, they do that uh, without being topic. forced? But why couldn't they do that without being forced to do it? If some people act because, you know, they want to see a better world, they want to see fewer heroin junkies, why would that change without, uh, you know, people being forced into things? Well, I mean, the biggest reason that most people don't become heroin dealers is because that's illegal. Well, I mean, the war on drugs clearly has not uh, really discouraged heroin dealing much. Well, it does discourage it enough for most people to not do it. I mean, in any case, uh, that's too few heroin junkies, I would say. If uh, you're forcing people to not to do it, there should be more heroin use, right? And uh, in a free market, if you want to see less heroin use, then, I don't know, come up with a free market alternative to heroin, which people want more than heroin, or take it upon yourself. Start educating people about the dangers of heroin. If you think heroin is a bad thing, tell people why it's a bad thing. Start educating people. Having some sort of uh, slaver state isn't going to sort the problem out. And if it does sort the problem out, like if you completely eliminate heroin usage 
at what cost, right? There can be bigger costs than some people are taking heroin. Like, you know, one way I could think of to completely make sure nobody's ever a heroin addict ever again is to kill everybody who is on Earth right now. And then there will never be an ever another heroin addict. Don't you worry about that. That problem is solved. But a much bigger problem is created. Namely, there are no humans left. You don't think that that's like an unrealistic kind of analogy, like going all the way from recognizing that state intervention has not only created the most effective infrastructures for getting people off of heroin and also preventing people from becoming heroin dealers as opposed to, as opposed to something other than, you know, something that is more productive and conducive to a society, um, and then going all the way to killing every human being alive to solve the heroin problem. Like, I feel like this well, is the know, whole thing, like, the, the whole reason I'm, like, fine with you doing these and, like, sauntering away like you've won every time is because I feel like you don't understand how unrealistic and silly your examples sound. You know what I mean? Like, uh, what, the, what the analogy does is it demonstrates the principle that the cure can be worse than the disease, right? You can imagine any number of uh, potential solutions to the final solutions to the problem of uh, heroin addicts. But uh, those solutions are not necessarily superior to the problem that you're trying to solve. You could create a bigger problem, and the state is a bigger problem than people choosing to be heroin addicts. It's a way bigger I mean, problem. You, you could definitely say the state itself is a bigger problem than to people choosing to be heroin addicts, but the state is not a problem. <laughs> the part of the state that is a problem is not the part that funds people who are social workers and drug treatment specialists and counselors and also the the part that funds the police who like i don't know i guess in theory stop a heroin addict from committing a crime that is violent against other people so that they can get money to fund their drug habit you know what i mean like there are some good aspects the problem with the state are the parts where it creates the heroin epidemic where uh you know they import heroin from other countries to fund legal wars and stuff like that like there are different actions of the state and some of them are positive and some are negative. And I feel like the fact that you have to go all the way in one direction and just, I mean, literally throw the baby out with the bathwater is like, I don't know. I mean, you can, you can throw out all the theoretical examples that you want. And I think that that's, I don't know. Like, I know that you keep thinking, thinking that you're owning me by doing this. And I think that's, that's what's fun about this. Like, I mean, uh, this will this will be a fun one for your uh, leftist audience. Uh, do you disagree with ACAB? I mean, so ACAB is like, it's it's a very simple slogan, and yeah, in capitalist states, all cops serve a fundamentally bad system. That doesn't mean that individual cops can't do something good once in a while, or that some actions that they can't particularly take hey. and defend some good people once here and there. Well, but like, those are mostly incidental because well. That's that, one, one, one part that. of what you one part of what you cited there was well a part of the state which is the problem is not the part which funds uh, the police who are fighting this drug war and stopping all these uh, no no I said a part a things, huge part of the things. problem no a huge part of the state is the part that funds the police who are perpetuating the drug war because they're like <laughs> there's a lot of heroin addicts who need the counselors and who need actual help and rehab and then there are people who need to be helped when like a heroin addict is trying to rob someone because they need money for the day. You know what I mean? Like those are two very different things. And that heroin addict who's trying to rob someone probably also does need a counselor. But that doesn't mean that like the person who's at the ATM wouldn't be served better if there happened to be a cop 10 yards away to protect them. Right. So uh, why can't we have free market counselors? Why haven't they replaced state counselors? Like, it's not profitable for them to do it. It's something yeah, because there's a monopolist be... there, 
right? No, if, there if isn't. I, like, it's totally fine if, to have private. If, there's no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, if, other than like if, the regulations to ensure that you're qualified, you can if, just open up a practice and be yeah. a private counselor. And many uh, people do. So that's a type. That's a type of. Uh, that's a monopoly grant right there. But I mean, even ignoring licensing, if I just uh, say, "Hey, uh, everybody in the world, you have to pay me in order for uh, me to provide you some sort of substandard level of uh, health insurance, right? Whatever it may be, or food. Like you, everyone in the world has to pay me, uh, you know, a quarter of their paycheck every month in order that uh, they get a package of shitty food." People are going to spend less on free market food there, right? You're, you're going to have a substandard market for food across the board because everyone is already being forced to pay for some amount of food. So they're going to pay less on like the good shit. Whereas in a free market, they might pay more. They may, they'll have more available to pay on the good shit. So to me, that sounds like a really good argument to have like a basic standard of food that's given to everyone for <laughs> a small stipend and then... They, no, pay it's shitty food. Prices, they pay cheaper prices on the the still. No, they won't. They won't. Market. They won't buy. They won't buy the good food. They'll just take whatever I whatever I'm giving them, and then they're like, "Well, I mean, I'm not going to be spending massive amounts more on other food because I've already got some food. Right, it's shitty food." But I'm. Well, I'm still I don't really understand your food. example. To be honest with the food, but like to try to bring it back to the therapist, like there are still free market therapists. There are still private therapists. They totally exist, and mm -hmm. really, they just create the situation in which the wealthy people can afford the best therapists and then poor people are left usually without or with the state funded therapist or whatever they're able to get. And so, I don't know, I guess I think of it kind of like public defenders. It's like people imagine that when you're getting the state funded lawyer or therapist, you're getting the, sorry, the bottom of the barrel ones, like the, the people who are doing it because they don't have a choice to work in like a private practice or whatever. And I don't think there's actually a lot of truth to that. I think that's like a harmful stereotype in a lot of ways, but, um, it remains the case. I think that, uh, having the limited amount of regulation that it takes just to make sure people are competent at the job is fine. And there are still even like volunteer therapists. Like there's a whole lot of, they're even doing with apps now. Like hmm. people volunteer, volunteer therapist. Yeah. That's, that's a great idea. So yeah, but know, it's not if, that if uh, it's still somebody not as came successful along with a problem and they're saying, well, uh, well, I'm, well, I'm worried about, you know, heroin addicts running rampant. Well, I mean, those people could just volunteer to be a therapist if they're that is really my whole that point worried. Is why haven't they? the volunteer ones, even with the apps, as easy as it is, it's literally easy, as easy as downloading an app and volunteering to do it with no qualifications, and you can do it. There are ways around all the regulations and everything. Why hasn't that replaced the state-funded therapist as, like, the main effective ways of getting people off of drugs when they need this kind of help? Because the, the so needs you, are there. So you think the solution is to rob people and fund extra therapists with that robbed funds? So you, you call it robbery, but you have to, like, this is kind of my other thing that I wanted to bring up tonight, is, like, if you don't control the definitions of, of things, you really don't have a whole lot to stand on. Like, you have to call it robbery as opposed to, like, you know, I think a lot of people would think about taxation differently if they had some kind of say as to where their money went. You would think of I mean, it a lot less like robbery if you could determine that your funds went to actually helping fund the, the, her the heroin therapist right, as yeah. opposed to the 900 military bases. So we should have a choice over where our money goes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if it, what, what we need is we need, uh, you know, complete choice, complete say, hey, I want to put my money into this thing and I don't want to put my money into that thing, right? Rather than just being told we're going to going to be taking your money and we're putting it into whatever the hell we want. We we should have complete say over where our money goes, right? I mean, you can say complete, 
I think the word complete is doing a lot of work there, but sure, why not? I mean, that's a free market when you have a choice over where your money goes. That's free market. Okay, so then where in the free market does it then... <laughs> well, no, 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 it's irrelevant. Your... It's irrelevant because you just said we need uh, people who might think about tax a whole lot differently if you could uh, send your money wherever you wanted. Yeah, and they would because that wouldn't be tax anymore, right? That would just be a free market. That's just, be, that's just paying for the services you desire. I mean, but there still, there still are things that are necessary for a society to function that people aren't going to fund purely out of the profit motive or that aren't going to get done. If they don't fund them, the they, it shouldn't be funded. Right? Just because something won't be funded under a free market doesn't imply that we should rob people to fund it. I mean, the fact that no society has ever existed at any scale where it's been stable and able to develop and accomplish much using these like principles, sorry, these principles that you're describing, I think puts that to rest. That's kind of the whole thing here. I mean, Iceland existed at uh, quite a significant scale in uh, medieval times. Uh, and they didn't have a tax for ooh, centuries. It was only after they introduced a tax. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like you have to uh, go they start collapsing. Like, essentially to the point but where... You said a society has never existed at a scale, right? And that, this is a counterexample to that. So now you have to shrink your uh, thesis, don't you? No, I'm, I'm still saying like that's not the scale that I'm considering something that would be like a, a model that we need to emulate worldwide. Mm -hmm. oh, well, the model you, is uh, we should be ethical. It, it, Right? We should do what we should do, right, by definition. Yeah, but how do you determine that? Uh, you determine it with uh, the area of philosophy we call ethics. So, um, you know, it, we can say, hey, uh, it is necessarily the case that you ought not aggress on someone. That's necessarily true. Uh, and taxation is a form of aggression. So you ought not tax anyone. So we ought be rid of taxes. This is objectively the case. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you as well. Um, I remember from the first episode, and I wanted to clarify it in the last one and forgot to, we never got to it. But could you make explicit that connection that you're making between aggression, I guess the way I would think of it, as in like bodily harm, and then aggression on someone's property? Because I feel like that's the whole thing that I have a weird issue with. Um, like, what was the, well, we, we started talking about water privatization. And you jumped to the analogy of, what if I needed to have sex uh, so that I wouldn't die? Could I force myself on a woman? And I thought that not only is that a really hilarious example, but like, what is the connection there between material needs and then property rights? Like, if you need to, you know what I mean? Like, you need water to live, but then how to, how, where, where's well, the, the property the... rights equivalent there? The the connection is that aggression is defined in general as contradictory action, or sorry, the initiation of conflict, and conflict is defined as contradictory actions. Uh, so this is, you know, irrespective to whether the uh, physical happenstances that you are interacting with their body or something, some means that they're using, right? It's all irrelevant because their body really is just a means that they are using still. Uh, it's the only difference between so see, your to body. Me that sounds like and... you're saying reality is irrelevant. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm saying the reality of action is all that's relevant, not uh, you know physics. The laws of physics aren't relevant to ethics. Okay, but like you still have a body. So how are the what, what, mm -hmm. why is the physical part irrelevant? Uh, what matters in ethics is 
actions, right? That's all that matters in ethics because we're doing... Uh, ethics is basically derived from the uh, a priori of argumentation. where And uh, the a priori of argumentation, argumentation being an action, is of course a subsidiary of uh, the axiom of action. It's all about action. It's all... It's a part of praxeology, really. Uh, whereas physics, it's a completely different field of study. You're studying physical forces, laws of nature, ethics, you're studying normative laws, right? It's completely different. Um, I mean, sounds cool. I don't understand most of that. I don't, I, I mean... That's right. What is, what's the, like... Oh, I know, I know you think that, like, you're destroying me here, and I think that that's fun. It just all sounds like a bunch of cope to me to, like explain why your stuff doesn't work in reality that's that's the whole reason I mean, I think you, these things are fun you, like, you can you can you can interrogate to all you want like go ahead like how do you make the connection between all right let me i guess i'll use the example that i was using with uh there's this kid in your server chief praxeologist who came into our server in our debate room and i posed him this example and he could not explain it in layman's terms he just had to change the definition and then he eventually left but the example i gave was let's say you have a source of water and a bunch of people are using it they have been using it for however long it could be hundreds of years like generations that people have been using this source of water everyone's getting water from it and then one day you decide to somehow put a lock on it you either put a fence around it you do something where you just lock up this water source and now no one else has access to it and so i said that that would be an aggression like you are stopping people from getting something that they materially need to survive that they were getting before then and then you created the situation where you're preventing them from getting it. And then you, he's like, well, you should be selling the water and it would make sense for you to sell the water because you wouldn't want to just hoard it for no reason. And I said, still, you're creating a situation where now they have to do something to pay you. They got to labor, they have to do whatever it is that you demand to get this water that they previously, previously just had free access to. And how do you justify that as not an aggression? And his best solution or example that he come up with was just changing the definition of that to homesteading. And I thought that was really unsatisfying. So do you have like a better example of the, that? Or? So the initial person who is uh, getting the water from this source, right? Uh, they have homesteaded the action of getting this water from the specific part of like a river or whatever it is. You know, um, so long as other people are not engaged in contradictory action, like, you know, uh, trying to get water from at the exact same time he's getting it and like scooping it out of his bucket or whatever, uh, then they're not aggressing on him. Uh, if uh, you have, you know, enclosed this water source, which people are trying to get to, to, you know, every day they're going down there and they're picking up water, then you're forestalling them from, uh, you know, potentially something that they own. They potentially mm. have uh, homesteaded a right to uh, take water from that well, you know, however it may be. Uh, I would need specifics to know exactly who is aggressing on whom and, you know, where the property rights are assigned and all that. But, uh, you know, I can just give you the general spiel of it, that uh, you are able to homestead certain actions. You're able to homestead the action of taking water and people aren't allowed to prevent you from that action if you've homesteaded it. So then I guess, how does that differ from like a Marxist interpretation of communal property rights? Like if you can homestead it, you can homestead certain actions and then those actions don't prevent other people from being able to homestead the amount of water that they need. Like, how are we 
I feel like we're agreeing here. Well, it differs in that uh, there is no such thing as a communal property right in uh, this theory. So uh, you don't have uh, a collective could not possibly own anything. Because if there's a conflict between people within that collective, there's no way to resolve that. Whichever party you pick to be the winner, uh, necessarily the losing party did not own it, right? So there's no such thing as a collective property right over anything. Because property rights are necessarily exclusionary. I guess, um, so I feel like that is sort of an important point to get to. It's like, if you say that there's no, no communal property right, then you have to assume that this other uh, conception of this very individualist conception of it is then first of all the correct one and that also that I'm assuming anything it, I mean you definitely are because I'm assuming that the communal property right no 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 I didn't assume it I just, I just demonstrated that communal property rights implies a contradiction so I didn't assume anything I mean you you say that but how do you how did you prove it I just gave you the proof. Uh, so if you have a... We assume that some collective, A through Z, uh, they own some property alpha, right? To make it as general as possible. Uh, so the definition of ownership is if uh, an owner has a conflict over the use of alpha, then necessarily the owner has the right to uh, exclude uh, the aggressor. Right? Only the owner will win any conflict. Justly, that is. But then what happens if A and B have a conflict over how to use alpha? Uh, uh oh. Um, let's say that A wins. Well, then B wasn't the owner because he didn't have the just say over how to use alpha. Well, let's say B wins. Uh oh. Uh, he didn't have the. That means A didn't have the just say over how to use alpha. Whichever party you pick, and you have to pick one because they can't both win by definition of a conflict. Whichever one you pick, you to, it means you the other wasn't. It means the it means the other wasn't the owner, which contradicts which contradicts our initial assumption that the entire collective owned it, right? But you had to you had to make the conflict. That's my whole point. Is like there was a there, there, communal there ownership. There is a possibility of conflict. There is always a possibility of conflict, and that's the point. A communal property right cannot resolve conflicts within the group. What I don't get how you were making that. That's a huge leap. It seems like. It's not a leap. I just explained it to you. No, why can't you resolve it before it gets to the point of just like, so the way you're making it seem like it's, I don't know if this is actually the case, but I've heard this analogy that if you take a whole tank of like crickets or something, you just leave them alone. Eventually there will just be one cricket because they all eat each other or something. You're assuming that again, you're like, you're doing the whole thing where you go from zero all the way to like the extreme. I don't, I don't get why you're doing that. Like it could just actually work that you have communal ownership if it serves the community well enough that they don't, create that this level is... of conflict that it gets down to one person. Well, it's true. It all, it all works harmoniously so long as there is no conflict, right? But that's not when property rights are relevant. Property rights are relevant only when there is conflicts. But when there is conflicts, if you have a system of communal property rights, you can't resolve those conflicts. You have no theoretic basis for determining who is just the winner, right? Because whichever party you pick is the just winner, the other was necessarily not an owner which contradicts our assumption that the community as a whole owned it. Why, did you, why do you have to resolve the conflict by That's the purpose ownership? of a property system. That's no, no, the purpose well, of a property system. I would say it would be better to resolve the conflict by doing whatever benefits the most people as opposed to just arguing over the ownership. But then you're still contradicting the assumption that the entire set, the entire group, owned it. 
right? So you still don't have group ownership. I, I don't follow. So I, I don't know which part is slipping you up. You have a group of people. We're calling them person A through to person Z. And we say, hey, they, let's, let's make it even simpler, right? Let's can, you, say, I mean, can you bring it back to the well, water example? Can you try to relate that in like a... Well, I'll, I'll, just do it, I'll just do it two people. We'll say Crusoe and Friday. They both own a stick, right? They, we're, we're presupposing that group ownership is possible. And through whatever means of our group ownership system, they came into possession, into ownership, that is, of this stick. And then Crusoe says, hey, I want to use this stick for uh, spearfishing, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. Then Friday says, nah, 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 I don't want that stick to be used for spearfishing. How do you resolve this conflict? Whichever party you pick to be the winner, you necessarily have it that the other party didn't actually own the stick. By the definition of ownership. Yeah, I mean, again, you just have to break it down to the level of these two people arguing over the ownership as opposed to the actual utility of the object that you're talking about. It's like, I don't know, in that situation, you're arguing over whether it's more beneficial to use the object, use the stick for one thing I feel like you're confused about the nature of ownership. No, I'm not confused. I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get at like the, the base level of where you're getting at this differently from where I understand it. And it seems so, like we are arguing about things like obliquely, like we're arguing about like scarcity of these these resources or whatever. You know what I mean? Like I feel like yeah. that's where we're getting to, right? Well, like scarcity is indeed a very important aspect because you can only have ownership where there is scarcity. Because you can only have conflicts where there is scarcity. And the point of ownership is determining who the winner of a conflict is, or the, who the just winner of a conflict is, I should say. Yeah, and so that's what I'm trying to get at when I use these examples. It's like because. I'm trying to make explicit examples where your system says that it's just for some person to close off a natural resource, possibly hoard it, and let people starve or die if they can't produce a profit for that person to give it to them. I'm going to send you like a video because I, I don't know how like more to explain this, and I have an animation in this video where I explain it in detail, which you can watch like after we've finished or something. Uh, I've sent it in the debate room, but like I, I don't think we're gonna get any further if, if yeah, uh, well, I mean, if you're not gonna understand the example of the set of people owning a thing implies a contradiction. I guess I'm no, I'm perfectly fine with you thinking that I don't understand it. I'm perfectly fine with you being theoretically correct and me being correct in reality because this is my whole <laughs> yeah, thing. But, is uh, that you theoretic, theoretically correct, of course, means correct. Yeah, I'm fine with you saying that, correct. and I'm fine with being here in the real world. That's that is totally like this is why I will continue. You're not to do in the real world. You. That's the thing. You're not in the okay. real world. You are. I mean, in the real world, falsely. people need water. No, people need water to survive. Okay, it's and you, that's not irrelevant because the whole thing it's I'm trying to get irrelevant. you to understand is no. Okay, what I was trying to say before you linked me the video, I do want to ask you to explain Georgism because that's what the title of the video is something about Georgists don't understand economics or property rights. And I did see after one of our last conversations that somebody in your Discord said that if you had just adopted the position of a Georgist, I would have nothing to say. So I would love for you to, if you could briefly explain what Georgists believe and why that is the case. But before you do that, I was trying to finish my example before, which is that in a lot of the scenarios you describe, when I say before and you guys laugh at me because you think it's like about feelings or hippie bullshit or whatever, 
when I say that you guys have horrifying examples of things that your system justifies, it is things like privatizing water and letting people starve. It's like people need those things to live. And that's why I'm saying like, I'm operating here in reality and you are operating in theory where those things are just and people taking that water that someone else cannot reasonably use is unjust. Whereas in the real world, like people understand that that is not really the case. But I mean, I, I don't know if you want to respond to that or if you want to explain the Georgism thing, but you could take I, it wherever I, you like. I could do, I could do uh, both because my response to the first one is going to be real quick. I mean, it's just going to be dude. In reality, people need to be able to rape other people to cure their sex diseases. Come on. Right, you remember my sex disease example, of course. Yeah, and before. I think the fact that you'd use that example is also very <laughs> telling. Like, <laughs> of course, of course. Anyway, so uh, Georgism is basically uh, I call it land socialism. It's uh, the uh, most reasonable form of Georgism. I'll just go over that because the unreasonable ones are, ooh, un unbelievable. Uh, I go over all the different types in my video, uh, but the most reasonable type is saying that homesteading is in fact a form of aggression because people have a right to act, and if you are homesteading, then that is preventing a potential action. And the reason why this is incoherent from the first step is that, well, this completely outlaws any action, but to even say that action is unjust, you must first act. So you've contradicted yourself, so it's a complete non-starter, and there are innumerable other arguments against the various different minutiae of the different Georgists out there. But the basic Georgist stance is, hey, uh, we need some sort of land value tax because it's unjust to homestead some land and keep people away from that land. They sound like, like cringy performance artists. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Marina Abramovich or something like, I don't know, they sound like the type of people that would be like, oh, this is my freedom to, like, come in your house and, like, kick your dog or something. Like, you know what I mean? It sounds yeah. like that's, it sounds like a joke. It is a bit of a joke of an ideology, but I mean, so is yours. I mean, I know, I'm fine with you saying that, dude. Like, this is why I like doing these. It just, I don't know, I don't understand how you don't see my point of view, how yours looks silly because you don't have, like, real libertarian projects that have, like, developed anything that challenge other nations that go into space that feed and clothe people like that do imagine that society is supposed to do like i, I know you think that you're like you're operating on a superior imagine level, like uh imagine back in the day when like you know uh there's yield liquid zulu sitting there with yield turn leftist and yield liquid zulu saying hey this whole slavery thing it's completely unjust we need to get rid of it and yield turn leftist is like oh, uh yield liquid zulu where exactly is the society without any slaves all our societies are built on slavery, therefore it must be the case that slavery is good. And I'm just saying they're like, no, 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 that doesn't imply that slavery is good, it's bad. In spite of the fact that all our societies are built on it. So is this where the time preference thing comes in? Because I actually had that down in my notes as something I wanted to get you to explain. Is this like time preference? Is that... No, it's just eth that's just the nature of implication in ethics. Okay, but from the little I understand about time preference, literally just from lurking in your discord i understand it to mean that if you have a long time preference which you guys do you are just assuming that your thing is going to win out just because it's inevitable well no and that's, that's not what time preference means at all oh, well then explain why i'm wrong because that's what i'm saying I, i'm sure i'm getting it wrong yeah time preference is a uh, praxeologic law which basically states that a man will prefer uh uh getting a good 
earlier rather than later. So I prefer a potato now than a potato in uh, an hour, right? That's basically uh, the law, so long as the good of eating a potato is homogenous across time, right? So there's a minutia there. And uh, the degree of time preference, which is what's relevant here, <coughs> is saying how much you prefer present satisfaction over future satisfaction. So a person of really high time preference might eat the potato right now, whereas a person of a lower time preference might go, hey, wait a minute, and they'd have to have a certain technological knowledge to them as well. They might say, hey, wait a minute, I reckon if I put this potato in the ground and wait three months, I'll have ten potatoes, right? And then they might say, hey, I actually prefer ten potatoes in three months to one potato now, whereas the high time preference person is saying, nah, 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 one potato now is way better than ten potatoes in three months. And that's basically time preference. And so, okay, I guess it doesn't have any relevance then to libertarian or NCAP, like... Cap yeah, it has no reference to law, really. It, the, only refer the only relevance I can think of to law is that, uh, you know, a monarchy would be preferable to a democracy because a monarchist would tend to have a lower time preference than a democrat. So therefore, a monarchist would tend to uh, expropriate less from people, right? Okay. That's the only relevance I can see to uh, the anarchist side of libertarian theory. Uh, on the economic side, there's all sorts of volumes written about the implications that time preference have to different uh, economic theories and whatnot. Okay, so I was inserting sort of the communist conception because, like, we say it all the time that communism is inevitable because we just, I don't know, we call ourselves historical materialists and talk all about the immortal science. And it's inevitable. What are you doing? Why are you bothering? Why are you bothering doing anything if it's inevitable? Because it's fun. Well, I'm, this is fun. I love doing this. Why, what's the point of praxis? What's the point of thinking about anything if it's inevitable? Well, because it also has to be done by people. Like, the idea is that people, given enough time, it's almost like the, the monkeys given enough typewriters thing, they will resolve the contradictions of class society by uh. taking the means of the state and then using them to resolve that contradiction. And that's well, the it sounds thing. like it sounds a whole lot like it sounds a whole lot less like it's inevitable and more like, okay, right, we need to get down and actually cause this thing to happen. As opposed well, to it just oh. being, well, it will necessarily happen at some point. Well, it's not necessarily going to happen at some point. It's going to have to be their efforts of people to make it happen. That's not necessarily going to happen. No, it is I mean, both. That's because, ridiculous. No, it's both because all things happen. Like even the states that we live in currently are only existing by the actions of people keeping them alive. They labor yeah. and the time that people are spending to do them. And the again, the assumption is still that people will try to find the best way to do that that serves everyone. And even if it takes a long time because capitalist states are hindering their progress and allowing them to even find the knowledge that that is the best way to go about it, let alone put that into practice. Yeah, it still has to be done by people, but it is, I guess, still, you can, that's the whole thing. Like, you I have mean, the hey, assumption hey, that capitalism you know, is the best way to do it. I have the assumption that Marxism is the best way to do it. But that I is what we are assuming is that eventually people will know, arrive at those conclusions en masse because they are the best ways. But good, sorry. 
don't let me correct you at all. If you if you guys think that it's inevitably going to be communism at some point, go ahead and keep thinking that. You're completely right. Uh, don't bother with anything. It's going to happen at some point, so you don't have to try too hard. You just keep thinking that. Don't let me tell you otherwise. No, that's good. All I like right. that. Yeah. See, this is Zulu, this is why I like doing this with you. Like, you have a good sense of humor about this stuff. Of course. I, I mean, I think I'm really funny. Yeah, he's pretty funny sometimes. Yeah. I think that that's actually a, a similar thing to what we would say about you guys. Like, I love, um, I've been talking to a lot of other, I had this other first debate episode I recorded and this very young kid and I sent it to a couple other comrades. I'm debating on even putting that one out because it's like, uh, I feel like it's mostly cringe, like some of the things that he said. But anyway, he was saying something about like, I don't know, the direction that the US was taking and how it's going to like balkanize and people are like splitting up into all these factions and it's destabilizing or whatever. And how that's good because more people will become, and I think he's also leading like the ANCAP direction. Like it's just going to be a lot of like people on farms and doing their, uh, I don't know, libertarian individualistic thing. And I was like, how do you see that as like a good thing for your capitalist ideology? Because I feel like you're just begging to be rolled over by other socialist states, like on the world stage <laughs> at least. I mean, um, you know, we saw like the U.S. government. Might of the world, biggest army ever, right? <clears throat> they couldn't be a bunch of fucking farmers in Vietnam who had like twigs and sticks and shit, right? And they, they failed there. They failed hard. I mean, AK 47. Yeah. You know, a couple AKs here and there. They, they were, they're they were important. <laughs> they, they, they really fucked up that whole conflict. I mean, it seems clear to me that guerrilla warfare is fantastically difficult warfare. to overcome. What? Communist guerrilla warfare. I mean, whatever whatever ideology they're fighting for is irrelevant. The strategy remains the same. If you had every man, woman, and child in America armed with an AR, and, you know, the knowledge to make punji traps, who the fuck's going to be able to take all that on? I mean, the, well, no, citizen, the citizens of America, like, just the civilians, they're already better armed than most nations' armies. Who's mm -hmm. going to be able to take that on in a Nankapstan, where you can buy a fucking recreational nuke if you want? Yeah, I mean, going to take that on. <laughs> no, I think that actually comes to another important point that we could talk about. Is like, I think the fact that they are a communist guerrilla force the, is it, it, it's very important that they are unified as opposed to an ANCAP guerrilla force that are also competing with with each other as well as competing with this invading army. You know what I mean? Like that, I think is a huge distinction. Oh, I think you need to be precise about what you mean by competing. Right. Uh, well, because if you have so, just an ANCAP land where these people are not united by anything other than they want oof. to defend roughly a land that they somewhat agree on is their ANCAP land from some outside aggressive force, it's like they are purposely anti-community. They're individualistic. It's like that's well, going to... I, I, think, I think you're conflating terms here. Uh, competition in war is not the same thing as competition in economics. Competition in economics is really a cooperative thing. It is the division of labor. You are cooperating with these people who are also in the market with you. But if somebody's invading, that's a different, that's a, an entirely different beast. That's not cooperative. That's very clearly aggressive. And if you have this massive Ancapistan, I can't imagine that would just come about just, you know, willy nilly. That's only going to come up. It'd be like an anarcho. That's going. 
that's only going to come about uh, as a result of people's public opinion. This is a Marx term, so you should get, you guys should love this. Public opinion needs to get to a certain point uh, where um, you know people are uh, sorry. The class consciousness is the analogous Marxist term. Class con- consciousness needs to be high enough such that they overthrow the uh, oppressive class, right? And when this class consciousness is high enough, then people are you know they're conscious of all this shit. What we ANCAP say is, right, that core thesis is correct, and we call it public opinion. And we're saying, right, when people's public opinion of the state is such that they want to actively resist it en masse, then I really don't see how on earth they're going to just be, like, sitting back and not caring that a new state is going to come along. They're going to be fucking up in arms, and they're going to be well better equipped than any military. Like, have you ever heard the term military grade is just, like, absolutely shit? Like military grade is not good. Okay, so good that's for government work at least. There's two. There's two things that I noticed there. Um, you're again assuming, like I just don't understand how you could say all the first part of what you just said and not still come to the Marxist interpretation that the state is just a tool that you can then use to your advantage to better organize people. The way that these people you're talking about public opinion instead of calling it class consciousness or consciousness or whatever. Because you are sort of recognizing that inherently, if people are only choosing what is immediately beneficial to them individually at any given moment, that's not necessarily going to be what is most beneficial for the entire group of people that are trying to protect this land from that they're in from aggressors or just even reasonably and efficiently distribute and, you know, produce and distribute things. So that's the first part. It feels like you're kind of inevitably, inevitably arriving at like a more communal structure of how this is supposed to work if it's going to work at all but then secondly yeah i'm sure military grade gets its uh it's what do you call it like a bad reputation in some ways but i don't know at least in america that's what i have to go by and the military gets all the fucking funding and it's, and it's still have, i'll tell you where that funding goes 10 grand to like a cup of coffee that's where it fucking goes oh no it's incredibly wasteful i agree but that's because <laughs> those people are motivated by profit as opposed to like no 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 food. they're not also, motivated by but hold on the main point that i want to make here is that the that's it's a, still a huge stretch to then say that small time individual dudes with their shops on their homestead in their ancap land are going to be able to do a better job of making a nuke than i don't know cern or something Oh, and Capistan could easy make a nuke. But anyway, you said uh, something there which I want to delve deep into. Uh, you said, you know, why don't we and Caps use the state as a tool? Um, well, that's the exact thing. We see the state as evil. So I want to know exactly what you mean by using the state as a tool. Because we wouldn't want to be evil in order to attain non-evil ends. That's, that violates the prefigurative principle. It's a contradiction. What is, what is this about prefigurative principle? Uh, so this is a term from, actually from pri- uh, primitivist terminology of all people, uh, where basically in some sort of political struggle, you can't use means which are contradictory to the ends you're trying to achieve. So I'm try- if I'm trying to achieve the end of nobody rapes, right? I couldn't go about raping people to achieve that end. That would be contradictory to my end, right? Why does it always go back to rape, dude? Why, why can't it just be like normal examples? Like, it's so weird. Well, rape's fun. What can I say? Oh, that's that's not a good look, bro. That's all I'm saying. Like, <laughs> that's, uh, you realize, what like, I people say? hear these things, like, what? What can I say? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. No, I mean, 
Are you are so, you a younger guy? Sorry, I never asked you this before, but I also used to be into like Shock Jock Radio, and that's why I do the style of program that I do now is because I'm literally hoping to like get dudes who are like young, edgy kids and find like far right humor really funny. I'm trying to get those guys like on our side and realize that we're not all a bunch of like snowflakes who get mad at like edgy humor. You know what I mean? Like like I'll let you make your rape jokes if that's really that funny to you, but like I don't know, I just don't find it all that funny, I guess. Okay, uh, so anyway, that's uh, right, why bro. we're not using the state as a tool. <laughs> anyway, that's why we're not using the state as a tool. Uh, because the state is, statism is evil, so we're not going to be statists to stop statists. It's a violation of the perfecter principle. What, okay, what, can you make explicit the perfigurative principle then? What is that again? Uh, so in some in some political struggle, uh, you cannot use means which are contradictory to the ends of that perfect, uh, of that uh, political struggle. Okay, so that's so, I think what I was trying to get at when I came up with my heroin dealers example versus heroin therapists. Like, how do you then get people in Kazakhstan to do things that are beneficial and conducive to a stable society, as opposed to what is beneficial to you immediately and individually, but is uh, what do you call it? detrimental to a society i mean i don't see how that is so how do you get uh, the people how... in the incap land to work together temporarily even to beat the i don't know chinese hordes the, the pla that's coming in to stomp them how do you get them to work together oh, temporarily yeah. to do that well you you start saying hey uh, guys in Ancapistan, uh, you? you know what it, it, why are they listening uh, to you well me right now, because you know I'm a famous libertarian. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a. This big is what guy. I mean, dude. If you only have <laughs> scenarios and you can't talk about it in like real terms, like that's this is what. What, I mean. what, do you, what do you want in in real terms apart from hey, try and get some people on your side and point out the Chinese hordes coming over the hill and tell them to point their guns that way. What more do you want? Because you're just describing like the Chaz. You try just like you remember the Chaz okay. right, from a few years ago, like yeah, yeah. Uh, except they didn't fucking understand anarchism. <laughs> I mean, I think they understand it really well. It's just that it doesn't work. Oh, no, no, that's, no. That's what we make fun of them for, too. Like, no, we call no, them anarchists no, and we no. laugh at them. Oh, no, they did not understand anarchism. I don't think there was a single anarchist amongst them. Okay, so then I guess we're still talking theoretically here. Like, you're not, you don't have to say anything incriminating or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I, know, I know, I know, I know. Like, like in, in the theoretical in Kapistan, like, you yeah, do understand it, anarchism. You have... In, in the, the theoretical in the theoretical Ankapistan, you'd have defense agencies set up. These defense agents, I, I would hope you'd think to, you know, uh, start a division of labor and have if if everybody's recognizing the, uh, you know, increased efficiency that a division of labor brings, then you're going to have the division of labor. Uh, solving the problem of rights infringements, right? You're going to have insurance agencies, you're going to have private defense agencies, right? And these private defense agencies, they're not stupid, right? They're going to see the Chinese warships rolling up and they're going to be like, hey guys, do you think maybe they might want to be attacking our clients? And then they go, yeah, they probably do want to attack our clients. Maybe we should uh, start planning something with everybody. And, you know, people people don't have to get involved, you know, if, if, if you know, you go to Farmer Joe and your Farmer Joe says, I don't care about them Chinese. And you're like, OK, OK, don't worry about it, Joe. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to be involved. Like, I mean, uh, presumably we've already overturned one state. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine we just like 
Okay, now we've overturned the US, we're just going to forget about all the other states. We're just everyone go home and forget all the tactics we've just learned. You know, that's not going to happen. Yeah, um... Okay, so now you have your your Yankapistan, and they have decided that they are going to work together to keep the PLA out. And they have various private security forces that are all working together to do that. And they've made it their job to make it as effort-free for all the citizens there um, so that they don't even have to really think about it. They're just patrolling all the borders because they realize that like most people just need to go about their day-to-day lives. They can't be worrying about the stuff all the time. How do you prevent that from becoming the de facto state? And even if you do, how do you prevent like a neighboring in Kapistan from deciding that their more efficient way of doing that is to just have taxes and those state defense <laughs> forces, and then also rolling over yours as yeah. well with the PLA. You know what I mean? I just uh, it just doesn't... so uh, so. How would this blue ball stop from being a red ball? And how would this neighboring red ball prevent the you know like say that it's not blue? Like it's it's ridiculous. Uh, like how how exactly would the state arise in this condition? It's possible. It's happened before, clearly, right? But you know, hopefully, people would be attuned to it, they'd have a high level of class consciousness such that they would recognize these things and they wouldn't just acquiesce as they are currently acquiescing. There's currently all this crime going on and people just let it be. If people don't let it be, then it ain't gonna be. Yeah, I mean, so I think we agree that just like you were saying before, how it's inevitable, but it still has to be acted, like you still have to make it happen through human action. I think we agree that all states and all... Con- and, and no, I was saying it's not mean, inevitable. I was, I, mean. I was taking the stance that it's not indeed inevitable. Nothing is inevitable when you have human action involved. No, it's no, not no, inevitable I, that we will reach anarchy. It's not inevitable that anarchy will last forever. None of these things are inevitable. We need to constantly keep vigilant and keep fighting the state. And hopefully one day it'll be eradicated. Yeah, no, I mean, what I was going to say is that I think we agree that all states, and by states I mean conditions as opposed to like state like we were saying, all conditions exist only because of human action. And on that part we agree. I just think that where I differ is that people will inevitably decide to resolve the contradictions with a state that serves everyone democratically and prevents people from hoarding. Because I feel like you're describing a situation where in order for it to work out to the best of everyone's, truly what you believe is to the best of everyone's benefit, because it is stateless and it is in Kapistan, they also have to have enough knowledge to know that that is the best thing long term, despite whatever their short term... Well, we both agree that class consciousness is required to go up, yeah, right? Hugely. It's it's Hugely. Yeah. That's a huge so portion we, bo- of we both agree that knowledge needs to be disseminated. That's why I don't understand how you're not a Marxist. <laughs> Well, because basically uh, there's this great paper by Hans-Hermann Hoppe uh, where it's Marxist and Austrian class analysis, I think it's called. Uh, Basically, uh, Hoppe goes over the core Marxist theses and he says, right, each of them on their face are correct, but the justification of them provided by the Marxists is completely false. And therefore the class theory which the Marxists come to to, uh, you know, categorize these theses is completely false. Everything else, apart from the core theses of Marxism, is completely false. But the core theses are fine. All right, I'm going to have to read that one, and then maybe 
we can talk about that one the next time. Unless you want to, unless you feel like you can explain that briefly, because I feel like that is the next sticking point that we're at, right? Sure. Uh, so basically, um, I'll, I'll also link it in chat for you to read at length later, I assume you will. Mm. Uh, basically, the Marxists, they have, you know, two classes, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And the proletariat are being oppressed by the bourgeoisie uh, for various reasons, right? Uh, the Austrians, we say, mm, those aren't the two classes. The classes are indeed oppressed and oppressor. But it's not the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. It's, in fact, uh, those who expropriate from people, from producers, homesteads, and traders, and the producers, homesteads, and traders. It is the productive class and the anti-productive class. Those are the two classes. When the anti-productive class, we call them the state. So it is the state versus the people. That is Austrian class theory. And how do you overcome this uh, state, this bourgeoisie? Uh, well, the class consciousness of the oppressed must be raised. Basically, we interpret that as, well, the public opinion of the state held by the people who are being expropriated by the state must be turned into such a, such a position that uh, they uh, are actively resisting the expropriation done by the state en masse, right? Because right now they are the state can only survive insofar as people's public opinion is such that they at least aren't actively resisting. They might not like taxation, right? But they aren't actively resisting taxation. Because the state is a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of the population. If people just said, nah, we're not paying any taxes, there would be fuck all that the state could do. There wouldn't be a single thing they could do about it. Nothing. Nada. So we need to raise that class consciousness. We need to, uh, you know, and that gets rid of the state, basically. That is Aust Austro-Libertarian strategy in a nutshell. There are, of course, minutia of how you do that, but I'm not going to give away everything to you guys, because then you might copy us. Even well, though no, we I mean, copied the Bolsheviks. As well you should. I mean, I think they were very effective. But no, I, I like that. I think that actually is very similar to something that I've been saying a lot. I think that Hoppe probably has a very, a lot of very differing points and things that I would contend with because I, I don't know, I just have a certain reputation in mind of people who like Hoppe. But I think it's very similar to, it's ironically like a, a Bill Hicks bit, and he always says like it's a decision. He's like literally people could just decide tomorrow to have a better society and en masse they could make that happen because it is a result of human action and you just have to decide and be able to imagine that better world. But I also think that in that situation, it would be silly to take something as useful and as effective as the state, <clears throat> sorry, and throw it out instead of to use it to your advantage to then provide something that is better for people, especially knowing, as you just said, that the state was able to exist for so long, being such a small minority of the people and still exercise such a huge amount of power over the majority of people, merely because it was able to mostly provide enough benefit for the amount that it was, quote unquote, robbing from people that they didn't bother to even decide that it was wrong, let alone take the action to do that. Like, that's, yes, like, that's a huge uh, thing. I completely agree, brother. When we attain the one ring, we shouldn't toss it into Mountain Dune. We should keep it for ourselves. It's so useful. We need to keep it and <laughs> use it in case Sauron comes back. Oh, uh, you know, we, we can use it for good. Are, are you actually a Lord of the Rings fan? Oh, hell yeah. I've actually, I'm, I'm literally listening to 
an audiobook version of it uh, right now as I'm as I've been doing other things. Uh, you should listen to the Silmarillion. It's fucking wild. I was actually yeah, I gotta get into that one too. I was talking to a coworker about that. I mean, okay, this is totally irrelevant to everything we've been saying, but is it as good as Lord of the Rings? Because it's I know it's like unfinished manuscripts that were put together. It's good in that, like you know, it gives you if you like Lord of the Rings, you'll like Silmarillion. It's like a different writing style and everything, but mm. like it goes over all the fucking like deets of uh, you know the uh, early ages and uh, all that shit. So like it's good to know all the backstory, so you know the references he's making in the main text of Lord of the Rings and Hobbit, of course. Well, I will just then I'll take a quick second to plug the one that I've been listening to, which is on YouTube. There's this dude who does these. Uh, he did. The, most of the first, the Fellowship of the Ring, and it's uh, called By the Fireplace or By the Fireside or something. And he not only does like different voices for all the characters, but he adds in all the music. And it's just like, it's great to listen to if you're like listening to it while you're doing other things. But um, I also am going to do a Lord of the Rings themed episode with the Intervention podcast soon. So if people are, I don't know, if I'm getting any people from your side of the aisle to come listen to Turn Left's podcast, they can check that out. But um, we're getting to about an hour. And I guess we can wrap it up here. There were some other things that I was thinking of while we we're doing this that I wanted to to get to, um, and maybe we can leave it for next time. I don't know if you would be down to do another one. I'm still yeah, sure. I'm always down I'm always down to debate. I'm again. I'm still super happy that like I know you are going to wave going to go away from this thinking that you trounced me, and I'm going to go away from this thinking that my fans have a lot of funny things that you said to hear. Um, but that's what I like about these. Again, and please. I will, uh, when I am done, I'll give you the last word because I got to have, now I have to go to like your YouTube channel and get the thing that you said at the very end of the last one and like manually record it so that I can put it onto the audio <laughs> of the episode when I released on our feed. So please, I will, I'm more than happy to give you the last word if that's what you want, if that's important to you. So please. Uh, they, uh, they, literally the only reason I did that was because people in my chat were saying, hey, uh, Zulu, you should uh, do a little recap at the end of each uh, debate. And I was like, eh, may as well. Uh, so I did yeah. a little recap, and I, well, you know, you you got a little annoyed about that. <laughs> you didn't like I mean, that I was doing behind your back. No, I think it's I. <laughs> to be clear, I do really like that you did that because, again, this whole thing comes down to like I think we are just seeing these things kind of differently. Like, okay, so what I was going to touch on as far as like last points was that I think that fundamentally the positions that you're starting from require some kind of force to maintain them. And that's why I keep harping back on like the water privatization thing and like hoarding a resource that people were otherwise using communally before, like up to that point. And because you're going to have to use some type of authority or coercion or force to protect that from people who would otherwise take what was just rightfully there yeah, yeah. the day before. You, need, you of course need to use force to enforce your property rights. That's obviously yeah. the case, but it's just force. That's my point. Okay. And you, you, of course, agree with me in theory, and in theory, of course, means correct. Okay, I mean, again, like I said before, I'm totally fine with you being correct in theory and me being correct in reality, and I know you don't You're see not that correct way. You're not correct in reality. Correct doesn't mean anything in reality. Okay. It doesn't mean anything. Okay, Saying so... correct in reality means nothing. Again, but these are all just points I want to save, like, for larger discussions the next time. And then, I think the other... What was I going to... I'm going to forget it now. It was, um... Uh-huh. No, I was talking about just I think that extends into why we disagree that current capitalist states are capitalist or not. And then, you know, we can by extension whether current socialist states are socialist or not. 
And for me, that like, I guess the point that I would make there, if we wanted to do like a teaser for next time, is that I feel like that's a big exercise in, and I don't know if even the word is obscurantism, but it seems like it is just trying to obscure things. Because it seems like, in, to me, by that definition, it's like World War II was just leftist infighting, which is crazy, a crazy way to interpret history and just the modern world to me. But um, again, I don't well, want to get into it now, but unless you want to make any like quick I point, would, I want to save it for next just, time. But. I would just say a quick point on that. I don't think... Uh, the left-right, you know, mapping dichotomy. I don't think it makes any sense. I think that's a Pythagorean uh, falsehood which should be carried through to modern philosophy, and I think it, we need to get rid of it. Okay, cool. And then the, the last thing I was going to say was in your whole description of raising the class consciousness of people to, like, get them to just realize that abolishing the state is in the best interest and then to then follow through with that, it sounds very much to me like again, the Marxist interpretation of getting people to be class conscious, but it sounds just much more like the anarchist. It's almost like the activism way. Like when I talk to like my hippie aunt who says we have to just raise awareness about like X or Y movement that she's onto this year that, uh, you know, is different from the one she was onto like six years ago. It's like they, they flash in the pan because they're based on such an individual individualist conception. They don't have like, the lens of observing history and then taking what works and what what didn't work and then using that to their advantage. And then the last thing, I'm glad I'm glad I'm remembering this so we can get on recording. I don't know if it was you or Prax Ben, but one of you guys had a video and it was like, why does this happen? It was them pointing on the political compass and it was people going from the libertarian to the alt-right position. And I would like to get your explanation again, not tonight, like to save it for next time, but think about I'll be Anglo Libertarian, surely. What's that? I'll be Anglo libertarian, surely. What do you mean? You'll be Anglo libertarian? I thought you. That, you that would be Anglo. I think that would be Anglo libertarian. The alt right position is Anglo libertarian. No, 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 no. Uh, oh, that's I the think, channel that did it. Yeah. Uh, I thought I thought that was you for some reason. My bad. Well, we're like the same person anyway, so. Okay. Well, that's fine. All right. So those are the things that I want to say for next time. If you have any other things that you wanted to bring up for next time, and if you wanted to get any little recap in at the end, that's totally fine. But that's all I have. Yeah, that was all I had. And I'm putting the video I think you're talking about in right now. Okay. Is that the one? Yeah, I'll put all the links of? that you've sent me in the, in the show notes. Um, I'll take a look. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. That's Angle. He, he's the guy who got me into YouTube. Nice. Okay, cool. Is there anything that you wanted to say before I uh, close off the box? Like I said, if you put anything on your YouTube that's not on here, I have to like manually record it with OBS. So save me the trouble, right. please. Nah, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. All right, well, thank you again, Zulu. I appreciate the time. I hope you had as much fun as I did, and I hope you're willing to do it again. Yeah, I will be. See you later. Thanks. Take care. Message for Mike of the future. Uh, suck my dick.